21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik. So in the kingdom of Bhutan, when a baby is born, the tradition is, is that you take this baby to the monastery and there are special monks who give the child a first name and a second name. which makes it impossible to know who's related to anybody because everyone has different second names. And so when we started our, our wine company there, um, we decided, hey, let's, let's let the monks name our baby. And so we took, uh, we went to the master namer monk and we said, hey, can you name our baby? And uh, they said, sure, we'd love to. And they went away for about six weeks and then they came back and they said, the name of your, your wine brand is Ser Kem. And we said, okay, what does that mean? And then he explained it to us. He said, when, uh, when you visit a Buddhist temple, it's considered to be uh, tradition to bring an offering for the gods. And that offering could be food, could be money, or it could be alcohol. And if it's alcohol, it's called Ser Kem. It's the alcohol of the gods. And so we're like, that's an awesome story. Uh, we'll take it. So the name of our wine brand is Sarkem. My name is Mike Jurgens. I'm a partner in one of the largest firms in the world where I want, run our global wine consulting practice. I'm also uh, on deck to become the 61st American to ever uh, be certified as a master of wine. I've written eight books about wine. I also own the highest rated silver rum company in the world, SoCal Rum. I started the wine industry in the kingdom of Bhutan in the Himalayas, which is a fascinating story. And I also play the drums in a punk rock band. I had been running marathons around the world um, and I had been trying to go to interesting places like Antarctica and uh, Australia and stuff like that to do this. And, and along the way, uh, I got an email because I was on a bunch of marathon email lists. I got an email that said Bhutan Marathon and it clicked something in my head. And it, I remembered that my girlfriend had read a book about Bhutan in high school about a Bhutanese woman who moved to Bhutan and fell in love with a man and stayed there. It was kind of like eat, pray, love, uh, Bhutan style. And um, and so she'd been always talking about wanting to go there. And so I said, ah, well, I'll sign us up for that. So I signed us up for the marathon. Um, they were only taking 10 international people um, and you had to apply and, and they selected us. And so I went to my girlfriend and I said, hey, congratulations, baby, I'm taking you to Bhutan, finally. And she goes, great, we're going to the Himalayas. And I go, no, we're not. Bhutan's an island in Indonesia. And she goes, no, it isn't. Uh, look it up. And so I whipped out my phone and looked it up and said, oh shit, I just signed us up to run a marathon in the Himalayas. Well, I guess let's see what happens. I did no research on Bhutan, nothing. 
I just said, we'll get, we'll get in the plane and we'll go and we'll see what happens. I did not know that Bhutan was known for this, you know, gross national happiness model. I didn't know they were the only carbon negative country on the planet. I didn't know they were revered for their harmony with the environment and sustainable. I didn't know any of this stuff. I get off the plane. I'm like, wow, this place is really neat. And everything I ate was amazing. All the food and vegetables there were just bursting with flavor. I'm like, wow, this place is awesome. In my head, I'm a wine guy, right? So in my head, I assume like everywhere else in the world that can grow fruit, they make wine. So I'm asking, including Croatia, by the way, you know, they've been doing it for thousands of years. Um, so I'm walking around, I'm asking everybody, where are the wineries? Where are the wineries? And everyone's like, what are you talking about? And so, um, Finally, we ended up having dinner with some government officials. And I, I said, hey, where's your wineries? I want to visit them before I leave. And they said, we don't have any. And I said, none. And they go, no, we don't have any grapes. And they go, you don't, you don't have grapes? They go, no, no one's ever brought them here. And I was like, this place would be perfect for growing wine grapes. I could see this being one of the next great wine regions in the world. You need to start doing this right now. And they said, well, why do you think that? And so I rattled off, you know, here's seven or eight reasons why I think. So I ended up going back to California. And when I got there, I wrote a white paper that said, here's why I think Bhutan could be one of the next great wine regions in the world. And I emailed it to him just like, hey, you guys should do this. I was just passionate that it should be done. I had no intention of doing it myself. <laughs> and so that led to a conversation, which led to another conversation. And pretty soon I wrote a 10-year business plan for the kingdom. And I did a draft of their initial wine laws and regulations for them. And I just sent it all to them. I'm like, do this. Let me know when it's done. I want to come and and uh, and, tr and try it. No, I had a little hand in, in making it happen. And they said, we want to do it, but we want to do it with you. We want you to lead it. Um, and I was like, holy cow. The To be given a, an entire country where... I get to decide what this wine culture looks like, what the wine styles are, what the wine business models are. This has not been done in the world since New Zealand did it in the 1800s. And I think it's potentially the last country on the planet that has the organic potential to grow wine grapes that doesn't already do it. And I was like, holy cow, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Of course I'm in. Of course I'm doing this. I don't care that it's in the Himalayas and it's geographically inconvenient and we're going to face a myriad of challenges. You know, I'm in. This is like the coolest adventure of all time. And so that's how it started. The first challenge that we had is trying to figure out what grapes to grow. You know, there's a lot of different wine grapes out there. Which grapes do we grow? And they all grow differently in different climates. That's challenge number one. Challenge number two was when you look at Bhutan, Bhutan from north to south is about 300 miles, maybe. So it's not that big. Um, in that space of 300 miles, it goes from 500 feet in altitude to like 25,000 feet in altitude. And so within that, you have every climate zone known to man. I have jungle at the bottom, I have glacier at the top, and I have everything else in between. And 
With that, the way that the, the hills and valleys and the mountains are set up is even within a similar climate zone, the microclimates are extremely different. And we had no idea where to even start with, hey, this is the best spot to grow grapes. We have no data. We have every potential option of climate known to man. And so we, we studied it and we tried to take a scientific approach and it became clear that that was, um, we could study it for a decade and still not have a good answer. And so at the end of the day, we, we just said, let's go, let's try stuff. Let's plant a bunch of different vineyards at a bunch of different altitudes and a bunch of different climates. We'll plant a bunch of different grapes. We'll see what works. Let's get rid of the stuff that's not working fast and let's double down on the stuff that is working um, and, uh, and, and attack it like that. And that's what we did. And, you know, we talk about, you know, failure. I'm going into this knowing that not all my vineyards are gonna work and knowing with 100% certainty that not all the grapes that we brought are gonna work. And, and I'm totally fine with that. I don't need everything to work. I need to find out what does work and double down on that. So that was kind of the first set of issues. Then the second set of issues is um, they don't have any grapes. So I need to bring grapes into the country. This is the only carbon negative country on the planet with magnificent biodiversity. And I'm about to import uh, foreign invasive species uh, into the country and plant them in the ground. And the last thing I want is I bring in some new disease or some new fungus or some new pest or whatever that then wreaks havoc on the local environment and ruins the, you know, the world's happiest country. You know, that would be... Uh, my name would still go in the, the history books, but for a far different reason, right? And so um, we had to work very closely with the Ministry of Agriculture and Forests to make sure that we're bringing this stuff in correctly. We're bringing in clean product. Uh, we're planting it in a, in a way that we can quarantine it if need be and keep a very, very close eye on it for the first couple years until, uh, until we're sure that it's working and it's not hurting anything else. And so that required uh, a lot of coordination and a lot of, um, of careful negotiation with the government. Then I had to get the vines. And I don't know if you know about buying grapevines, but when you email a nursery and you say, hey, I want some grapevines and I'm from the kingdom of Bhutan, they go, oh, you're a Nigerian prince and you want me to send you some, some money over here. And I, I, I couldn't get people to take me seriously. So I had the government teed up and ready to go, but I couldn't get anyone to take me seriously. And so finally, I got in my car and I drove from Southern California up to this big nursery in, in the middle of California. And I walked in the front door and I said, I'm here. I'm me. I have a checkbook. Sell me some goddamn vines. And they were like, oh, this is actually a real thing. And I was like, yes, this is actually a real thing. And so I finally had to get the vines. And then I had to get the vines from Southern California to the Himalayas without them starting to sprout or die along the way. So that was a whole set of logistical challenges. 
And I remember a funny story. I, uh, there were so many hoops to jump through because no one knew how to do this. No one had ever done it before. And I'm at LAX and my vines are at LAX. We're getting on two separate planes. And, uh, and I'm boarding my plane and I get a text that says, we've got a problem with the vines. We're not sure we can get them loaded. And the problem, I forget even what the problem was, but I was like, okay, I think do this. And I think that should solve it. And then I got on the plane to fly to the Himalayas, not knowing if the grapes were going to get there or not. And so, you know, it's a 24 hour journey because you go to Tokyo and then you go to Bangkok and then you go to, to Paro. I get to Paro, grapes aren't there and people have no idea where they are. And so I, I'm sitting out and I have a team of 30 people meeting me at 6 a.m. the next morning to plant the first vineyard. And I'm sitting on the steps of the hotel at five o'clock in the afternoon, literally head in my hands, just thinking, what the hell am I going to do? These grapes are going to, if they get lost, they're going to, they're going to die. Um, what are we going to do? And about 5.15, a truck pulls into the lobby of the, or the parking lot of the hotel. And they're like, hey, are you waiting for some wine grapes? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm waiting for some wine grapes. Yes. And uh, the gods were looking out for us and uh, we got them. And the next morning, planted the first vineyard. Merlot was the first grapevine we ever planted in the kingdom of Bhutan. Very cool. What happened with us is that I had been studying for to become a master of wine, which is one of the most respected certifications in the world. And to do that, one of the things that I had been doing for years is I'd been traveling to every major wine region in the world and kind of learning the culture, learning what they do there, tasting their grapes, tasting their food, talking to the people. And so I had this this exposure of having been to a bunch of wine regions and knowing what one looks like. And so at the same time, when I got to Bhutan, you, you know, I mentioned how they grow the some of the best produce in, in the world in, in really obscure verticals. Like they grow the best cardamom in the world, the best red rice and the best mandarin oranges. But the reality of it is, is every, every fruit and vegetable that I ate there was the best I'd ever had. Um, not, not the most beautiful looking, you know, little misshapen carrots, and it's the best carrot you've ever had in your life. And so I'm sitting there and I'm I'm having this experience with the flavor of the local produce. And I'm looking out the window at these magnificent terrace slopes and this beautiful pure water and this bright sunshine. And I'm like, this place is a wine region. And I didn't know it yet that it wasn't, but when I found out it wasn't, I was like, this is, this is, this is wrong. This is, there's a wine region hidden in here, ready to, to break out. And you guys must do this for the, for the world, you know, do this to, to bring the, the taste of Bhutan, the essence of Bhutan and a bottle of wine to the rest of the world. It's going to be special. You guys need to do this. I, I just felt so passionately about it. But we, you couldn't analyze it like you would analyze a normal, you know, business model. We, we, we I'll give you an example. Um, in the in the 
grape world, rainfall is super important, but they don't have weather stations in Bhutan. And so the way you find out how it rains is you go to the farmer and you go, how much does it rain here? And he goes, it rains a lot. And then you ask the next guy, he goes, ah, it doesn't rain that much. I remember being at this one farm where we're, we're talking to this guy, we're looking at his land and, and I go, how much rainfall do you get? And he goes, none. And I go, that's impossible. I go, I can see Paro town from where we're standing. I can see it. And they get like a thousand millimeters a year and you get none. And he goes, oh yeah, it rains all the time over there. But then the rain comes up the valley and there's that big rock outcropping that juts out and the clouds hit there and it stops and we just get a little bit of sprinkle on the top. And so there's no there's no data. There's no way to analyze it. And so we, we traipsed around the country and we dug holes and we analyzed soil. And we did everything. And, and then at the end of the day, it was just like, you got to take that leap of faith. And I, I believed in myself. I believed in my knowledge. I had confidence in my, my expertise in this area. And I had confidence in my ability to look at this and know that it was going to work. Funny story. We got about two years into this and, uh, and I found out uh, that about back in the eighties, maybe when Bhutan was still a monarchy and it wasn't really open to the public and, and whatnot, back in the eighties, there was a famous French guy who was very good friends with the King at the time. Um, and his name was John Gallet and John Gallet owns wineries on three continents. And he got to Bhutan and he had the same insight that I did way before I had it, you know, 30 years before I had it. And they started trying to put a vineyard in Bhutan and it never materialized. And so I'm hearing this story and the cynic in me goes, if a globetrotting billionaire with wineries <laughs> on three continents can't get this done, what in the world makes you think that this punk rock skateboard kid from Los Angeles can do it? And then the, the logical side of me was sitting there saying, look, this is a different world. We have different supply chains. The wine technology has advanced. And more importantly, I know that this is going to be a pain in the ass. And so I, I'm willing to do it. But if I had a bunch of great wineries all over the place that weren't a pain in the ass, you know, would I be, able, would I be willing to take on a headache? I don't know. So I don't know what went through his head. I don't know the history of... of um, exactly what went on but i do know that somebody else had this idea and it never materialized but uh it has materialized for us we we have our first wine aging in a barrel um right now um and uh the first barrel wine is we're going to release it later this summer imagine having one of the first bottles of wine ever made in croatia right that would be in a museum or one of the first bottles of wine ever made in america that'd be in a museum like you you can't even think about that right um but I'm about to have that for, for a country. And that's a really cool, cool thing. One of the marathons I ran was, was deep in the heart of Antarctica. And Antarctica is large. It's like the size of Australia. You don't really notice it because it's on the bottom of the globe, but it's big. So we flew this jet way into the interior, you know, landed on this 12 mile long glacier. And we get out, we're pre preparing to run this marathon. It's negative 30, 50 mile an hour winds. And, and, uh, and there's no track, there's no help. You know, there's no support, there's nothing. 
and they explain to you if you fail, you very easily could die. And they, they have tracked, they basically drove a snowmobile around in a giant 13 mile circle and they said, run on this. And, uh, and so we get out there and we start running and, uh, and I do the first lap and it's hard. And I start to do the second lap and I, I'm from Southern California. Like I don't know about Antarctica. So I brought all the wrong gear and my goggles froze over um, and I couldn't see. And, and so, and they had told us, if you, if you don't have eye protection, you will go snow blind fast. So you have to have eye protection. So what I did was I, I tried to kind of look down out the bottom of my glasses while I'm running, but I couldn't see. And so what I would do is I would just think I'm going in the right direction. And I would start running on this little trench until I hit the side of the trench and fell down. And then I would get up and reorient myself and keep running until I hit the side of the trench again. And I would fall down. And I did this for miles. And what I didn't know is the people behind me had reported me to the medics. They thought something was wrong with me medically because they, they're watching me and I keep like falling. And uh, finally, I get to this one place where there's a couple aid people. And I go, I, I don't think I can continue. I can't see. And the lady goes, oh, yeah, you, you got a big problem here. And I go, I guess I'm done. And she goes, no, 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 take my sunglasses. And I'm like, damn it, there goes my excuse. Uh, and so I take the sunglasses and I and I keep going and I end up getting lost and I I, I get really, really cold. And I'm afraid I'm going to die, but I make it. Bottom line is I make it. The point of all this is sometimes when I'm, you know, doing the Bhutan Wine Company, that's the way I feel. Like, there's this, we don't know. And we're just gonna keep running until we fall down. And then we have to pick ourselves up and keep running until we fall down again. And we're gonna fall down a lot and it's gonna hurt. And we're gonna be worried that we're gonna die. But the only way out of it is to keep going. And the the level of pride, the level of emotion that I felt when I crossed that finish line, I'm feeling it now. Like I'm choking up a little bit right now. It was so amazing. And I cannot wait to get that same feeling with what we're doing with Bhutan. Now, admittedly, and I've been telling everybody, you know, this, this project is for our grandkids. You know, it takes a long time to figure out and optimize buying. So, the true value of it to the country and to the people and to the wine world is decades away. But along the way, someday I'll hit my finish line and, and know I did that. So for those of you who are, are interested and want to learn more about uh, our journey in the Himalayas and trying to develop this wine industry from scratch in this magical Shangri-La, uh, if you go to BhutanWine.com, you can certainly uh, put your email in and, and follow along and get updates from, from what we're doing. And also there's a lot of fantastic images there. You can certainly follow us on Instagram as well if you like pretty pictures of the Himalayas. And for those of you who are interested in just learning more about wine in a kind of non-threatening way, 
Um, feel free to sign up for my newsletter uh, at drinkingandknowingthings.com. Um, it's easy, just put your email in and you'll get uh, my thoughts on a particular wine once a week and you can upraise your, uh, your wine knowledge. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Imagine a space where triumphs, trials, and tales of entrepreneurship come alive. Welcome to the 21st Century Entrepreneurship Podcast, a gold awarded journey hosted by Martin Piskorik, connecting with listeners in 95 countries and ranking in the top 0.5% of all podcasts. Join our exclusive community, elevate your perspective, and embark on the path to success.